What is the secret of a successful church? That is the question that many have tried to answer over the years. Usually what happens um, is a church grows to be sort of abnormally large under the leadership of one person. And then someone else comes up with an idea to capitalize on that growth by putting together a conference where many people will get together and essentially say, if we do what he did, our churches will grow too. Maybe. Maybe if we brought in world-class musicians or developed programming to meet every, every need or got involved with certain trendy social justice issues or Maybe if we brought in dynamic speakers, maybe then people would ask us what our secret is. That type of thing has been going on for many years. Uh, On one of his visits to the European continent, um, Pastor Charles Spurgeon met with an American pastor who asked him that very question. In fact, the account goes like this. He said, I have long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and to put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? And after a moment's reflection, Spurgeon answered him, my people pray for me. In some of his other works, he has this this to say about the powers of of prayer in the church. He says, the sinew of the minister's strength under God is the supplication of his church. We can do anything and everything if we have praying people around us. But when our dear friends and fellow helpers cease to pray, the Holy Ghost hastens to depart, and Ichabod is written on the place of the assembly. And again, he he says this, What can we do without your prayers? They link us with the omnipotence of God, like the lightning rod. They pierce the clouds and bring down the mighty and mysterious power from on high. The Lord give me a dozen importunate pleaders and lovers of souls, and by His grace we will shake all of London from end to end. Turn if your Bible, in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> We're finishing up this morning a, a kind of a brief doctrinal series on the ordinary means of grace. And Next week, Lord willing, we will jump back into John chapter 13 and pick up right where we left off. I think it was verse 18. But I want to read this, John chapter 2. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 8. Sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, getting ahead of myself. John next week, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, I pray that that I would decrease and that you would increase. Father, I pray that your word would speak to us today, that we might glorify you in our prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. According to this, according to these verses, we don't need to figure out how we can be extraordinary. We need to be obedient. See, God, in His Word, has ordained certain ways in which He nurtures our faith. And those ways are ways which do not change over time. They're not worried about relevance or style. In fact, they're, they're very ordinary. They're the things that we do regularly, and these things are not unique to us. In fact, churches all around the world in different cultures and in different languages and throughout the last 2,000 years have regularly participated in these ordinary means of grace. So if you were to travel anywhere on earth where the gospel is, And if you look hard enough, you're going to find a group of Christians doing exactly what we do here every week at Logansville Church. Some are doing it in hiding because they're suffering under persecution. Some will be doing this with only two or three people because that's the extent of Christians that live in that area. Others will be meeting in groups of thousands, openly praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people like the church in Acts chapter 2. You can see this model throughout history and you're going to see it in the future until Christ returns. Then you'll see it for eternity as we gather with Him. Why? Because these are the ordinary means of grace. These are the the ordinary, regular ways in which God nurtures our faith, and they're rooted in the Scriptures. And and they're very simple, and they're very easy to remember. Word, sacraments, and prayer. See, it pleased God through the, the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who would believe. And what do we preach? Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim. And it is His death, burial, and resurrection that that we identify with, that we see and taste and feel in the ordinances of, of baptism and communion. And it is to Him that we express our utter dependence upon in prayer. See, there is a a right answer to the question, what is the secret of a successful church? Especially when you see success the way that, that God sees success. In fact, maybe we should go ahead and use the term faithful instead of the term successful, right? So what's the secret of a a faithful Christian church? Well, it starts with this dependence upon God in prayer. 
That's what Spurgeon had said. But more importantly, that's what Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is what God tells us here in his word. So let me give you just a little bit of background of the letter of 1 Timothy. Paul is writing this to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the Christian church at Ephesus. Um, And he's instructing him to deal with several issues that were of great concern to the Apostle Paul, particularly some false teaching that was continuing to spread throughout the churches and specifically here in Ephesus. This becomes a a theme of many of his, uh, of the later, not even just Paul's, but many of the, the later epistles of the New Testament is the theme is deal quickly and severely with false teaching. But here... Instead of simply refuting them outright, which he also does, Paul sees fit to remind Timothy of the foundation of the church. And he instructs him to do the things like like appoint godly leaders, to teach the church how to relate to one another in Christ, to love one another, so that when false teaching does come up, they will know the truth and they will have a foundation upon which to stand. And in fact, he writes in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, he says, I I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things uh, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Because of the gospel, that's what verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, and incidentally, that verse there is probably a confession or a creed that the church sung as a hymn, and Paul is quoting that in that verse, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Because of the gospel... Because it is the church's responsibility to to pillar and buttress the truth, to, to hold it up, to support it and protect it. Because of those things, there are certain ways in which we, we ought to behave in the household of God, as he says. And, and their chief behavior is prayer. Prayer. A church that desires to be taken seriously by God. A church that confesses dependence upon God will be obedient to his commands, starting right here. The assembled church of God itself must be a people of prayer. Now, let me clarify. When we gather for worship, when, when we assemble on Sunday mornings for worship, we must be about the proclaimed word of God. Uh, we, must, we must regularly observe the ordinances, however that works out, of baptism and communion. And we must pray. We must pray. Uh, there's not a, a ranking here. One of those things is more important than the others. If we are to be considered a, a church in the eyes of God, then we must actively and, and regularly be active in the, in the ordinary means of grace. The, the means, that means that we must pray. The gathered church must be a people of prayer. The last thing that Jesus did um, in the Gospel of John before his arrest, the last thing that he did was to pray for and with his disciples. It's John 17. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the first thing the church did following Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, the first thing that the church did was to gather in an upper room and pray. When the church exploded in growth in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, one of their very first priorities was to devote themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. When they faced opposition in Acts 4, 24, they gathered to pray. When Peter and John were arrested in Acts chapter 12 and and James was executed, the church gathered to pray. So, So let me ask you a personal question. Do we believe this applies to us? Why do we find prayer so hard to do? Personally, individually, on our own, why do we find it so hard? Why do we find gathered prayer, long pastoral prayers, why do we find them so hard to sit through? Why do we find them boring often? Prayer is all over the scriptures. It's front to back. It's everywhere. Every book, with the exception of the book of Esther, where it's implied, every book contains at least one explicit reference to talking to God, to prayer. Every book of the Bible, except for Esther, and in Esther it's implied. Sometimes it's done individually one-on-one. Sometimes it's privately. Sometimes it is public. Sometimes it's small group of believers praying and in hiding. Sometimes it's the people of God gathered in public places to pray together. Prayer so permeated the life of Jesus that his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And one of the characteristics of the Lord's Prayer, which I prayed earlier as part of the pastoral prayer, One of the characteristics of the Lord's Prayer is that it's plural. Have you noticed that? It is our Father. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. Deliver us. See, when when we gather together and we pray, we're all praying together. Even if one of us is up here leading, even if it's me or... Chad or Lyman or Steve or someone else. It's, it's all of us praying together. Prayer should be a part of our DNA. It should be a part of our identity as the people of God. It's the assembly of the saints approaching the throne of grace together. And, and incidentally, that means that the prayer time it's probably not the best time to sneak out of the service to use the bathroom or to find a piece of candy. <laughs> but I digress and I sympathize. Back to first, especially with the candy part. But back to First Timothy. In these verses, Paul instructs Timothy to, to set the church at Ephesus straight. And he does so by providing six characteristics of prayer in the assembled church. 
So that means that when they gather together to worship, as opposed to individual prayers or private devotional prayers or even prayer meetings where they, where they would gather together for a specific time of focused prayer, when the church gathers together in her regular worship services, these six characteristics of the prayers should be present. Number one is this. Prayer is to be the priority or a priority of the gathered or assembled church. So look at the the beginning of verse 1. He says, first of all then. First of all. Think about this for a minute. Clearly, in the life of Jesus, prayer was extremely important. Right? Clearly, in the life of Christ, prayer was extremely important. He prayed frequently. He would go off by himself to, to pray during those long seasons of ministry. He prayed at major decisions that he needed to make before he chose his disciples, for example. He prayed in the garden before his arrest. The same could be said for the Apostle Paul. He would frequently, in his letters, request prayer. And he would tell the churches exactly how he was praying for them. Often that's how his letters start. I thank my God for you. And then he tells them why. Acts chapter 6 tells us that the apostles, and we believe later the elders as the church leaders, they were primarily tasked with ministering the word and prayer. In fact, fact, that's my job description, right? That's the job description, simply put, of the elders of a church, the ministry of the word and prayer. But prayer is also a priority for this gathered church, for the visible people of God. First of all, Paul says here, listen to, listen to God's own words in Isaiah 56, verses 6, 7, and 8. This is what God says. Isaiah 56, 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So think about that. God views his house. That is the the assembled people of God. He views his house as a house of prayer. First of all, then, Paul says, we ought to be a people who pray. First of all, then, we ought to be a people who pray. I want to be clear, and maybe I'm being overly cautious, but pastors are called to in the Scripture when the church assembles to publicly read the Scripture and to preach and teach God's Word. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself, Paul is telling Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he charges Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Pastors are are called to do these things. And in addition, the church is called to pray. And these two things are linked. The the apostle said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. See, there is power when God's word and prayer are prioritized in the church. And here's why. Because God has spoken to us in his word, and we are instructed to respond in prayer. Because prayer is first and foremost an acknowledgement of our utter helplessness and his utter and absolute helpfulness. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He hears our prayers. I want to just say this here as well. Prayer can be done very well in song as well. We should explicitly pray, and we do, but our songs that we sing should also be prayers. Think of the Psalms the songbook of the people of God. Think of the Psalms. Sometimes when you don't know what to pray, you should pray the Psalms. Sometimes when you don't know what to pray, you should pray Psalm 32, Psalm 34, or Psalm 40, or any of the ones between Psalm 1 and 150. Sometimes when you don't know what to pray, you should pray the Psalms. And glory to God, we can also pray like John Newton prayed. I would start with the Psalms, but listen to what, listen to what Newton prayed. We just sang this. Approach, my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There, humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. Thy promise is my only plea, with this I venture nigh. Thou callest burdened souls to thee, and such, O Lord, am I. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that sheltered by thy side, I may face a fierce accuser face, and tell him, Thou hast died. A wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Sing songs, pray songs that that preach the gospel to you. John Newton writes that to himself, approach my soul the mercy seat. That's why I'm so picky about the songs that we sing here when we gather together to worship. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The songs that we sing must be based in the word of Christ. It must either be, either be sung as encouragement to fellow Christians or prayers to our God. And more often than not, like that last one, they're combinations of the two. Approach my soul, the mercy seat. Or how about 
Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. First of all, then, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Prayer is to be a priority of the assembled church. And then secondly, prayers are varied in the assembled church. Paul lists here in these verses, right in the first verse, he lists four different types of prayers that the church is to pray when they gather together. And to be honest, the the first three types have only slight differences, but those differences are important. So again, verse 2, 1 Timothy 2, 2, sorry, verse 1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people. Supplications, or some versions might say requests or entreaties. These are those prayers which specifically offer up a request for God to meet a specific need. See, all true prayer should begin with a sense of need. That we, that we have a deep desire that only God can fill. This is the idea that God wants us to cast all of our cares upon Him because He cares for us. We are a needy people. Supplications, requests, entreaties. And, and then Paul writes, prayers. I urge that supplications, prayers. Prayers is a, is a generic term, but I want to be clear, even though it's generic, it's a prayer, we can pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise. It's kind of a generic term, but it's always and only used in relation to God. So the other terms might be used in the, in the context of requesting help from a, from a king, for example. The very meaning of the word prayer brings with it a unique element of worship and reverence. So you can bring supplications, needs, to your parents. You can bring supplications to the magistrates. But we only pray to God. Uh, Prayer is a a part of worship and and has an element of reverence with it. Prayer is a sacred act of worship. It's not simply a a Christmas list. It's not simply an expression of our wants or our needs even. It's an act of worship. And so when we gather together, when we assemble as a church and one of the elders typically come up here and prays, this is an act of the church worshiping God. It is us as a church, as Logansville Church, declaring our dependence upon Him. Next, he mentions intercessions, or again, some versions might say petitions. And the verb form of that word is used to describe both the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. So this idea of of being an intercessor or interceding. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, 
First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for the people. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to, what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit identify with our needs. They become involved with our struggles and they become advocates on our behalf, interceding for us. There's an idea here of, a, of an intimacy with God, of, of drawing near to Him and, and confidently, and yet with, with empathy, with sympathy, with compassion, uh, interceding for others, praying for others. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's not just a a pithy little statement. When we say, I'll pray for you, that should be the truth. It should be how we intercede for one another, knowing that our Christ and our Comforter, our, the Holy Spirit, are deeply involved in that prayer. And then Paul writes that we are to make thanksgivings, but not only for answered prayer, but also for who God is and what He has done. Because thanking God for what He has done in the past both explicitly thanking Him for what He has done, but also with an attitude of thankfulness. It serves to strengthen our faith to believe that He's going to continue to meet our needs in the future. If we have hearts of thanksgiving, we believe that God will continue to meet our needs in the future. I'll give you a very specific example. Um, we moved here in 2012. I don't know if I've ever said this from up front, but we moved here in 2012, and the first year or so that we were here, my prayer was, Lord, how do I shepherd this church out of being a church? We were headed not in the right direction, we'll say. And I just started praying. And I know that there were others here who were praying, praying for this church. And numbers, I don't want to, there's always a danger in sharing numbers, but I'm going to share a couple of numbers with you. In 2016, our average attendance on a Sunday morning was 67. In 2017, I think it was 74. In 2019, our average attendance is 120. Now, I know those are just numbers, but that's you. That's us. It's the people sitting in the room. God has answered our prayers and continues to, not just by building numbers, not just by, but by assembling his people, by bringing us together. And so our only response is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God that he continues to build up his church. He will continue to meet our needs in the future. Offering up thanksgivings to God benefits us. 
And it gives glory to him because he has done this, not us. This is nothing that we could do. All of these varied types of prayers are essential to the life of the assembled, the gathered church. Prayer benefits us, benefits the the gathered church as well as the universal church, as well as the the big church. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For all people, Paul says. Now, obviously, this is a very broad and, and general term. But the point is that, that we ought not simply pray only for ourselves. We ought not simply pray only for the people in this church. We should pray for the saved and the unsaved. We should pray for, for people near to us and people far away from us. We should pray for enemies and friends, for all people, he says. And so, frankly, we should be praying for refugees. We should be praying for orphans. We should be praying for widows. We should be praying for other churches. We should be praying for the lost. We should be praying for the found. So this is a a generic idea and term for all people. But then Paul gets specific and he says that we should be praying for kings and all who are in high positions. And Paul is very clear here. He's specifically calling on the gathered church to pray for those in governmental authority. And when he is writing this, Nero is the emperor, probably. And it's most likely the same emperor who would execute Paul and probably Peter. The same emperor who would light Christians on fire to light up his garden so that he could eat. He's calling him to pray for kings and all those in high positions. As a church, we are to pray for our government leaders, even those who happen to be enemies of Christianity, even those who are outright evil. We are called to pray for them. This kind of prayer for those in in various levels of government should have a, a regular place in gathered worship. And why is that? Because Paul says it it benefits us as well as all Christians. We ought to pray this so that we can live peaceful lives, free from outside disturbances. That we should lead quiet lives, free from inner turmoils and worries and stress. That we could lead godly and dignified lives. The early church constantly experienced persecution. And that continues through our day. Now, now listen to this very carefully. The key to changing a nation is not voting. It's the salvation of sinners. Now, now don't get me wrong. Vote. Please vote. Be involved. Pray for more Christians to be involved. But the only long-term solution for a broken nation, whether that's North Korea or Syria or China or the United States, the only key to it, the only long-term solution for a broken nation is salvation. It's Jesus Christ. So pray for the leaders of those nations. 
Pray for the leaders of our nation, that the Christians who live in those nations might live peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified. It benefits all believers, Paul says. And fourth, the fourth observation here, the prayers of the gathered church please God. The prayers of the assembled church please God. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Living the good life uh, according to um, God is living a life of prayer for others, particularly those in authority. And this is pleasing to God. And, And just so you know, pleasing God is not just simply making Him happy. Pleasing God is, in Scripture is the ultimate standard for acceptable worship. So in Leviticus, when the, when the offerings were burnt, the aroma was described as pleasing to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the word is translated acceptable, pleasing. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, pleasing and perfect. Living lives of prayer, both in and out of of our gathered worship, is good and pleasing to God because of His nature as our Savior, and because He desires that all men should come to a knowledge of the truth. When we pray, we are submitting to Him. When we pray, we are saying, Your will be done. There's a whole lot more that we could say about this and about this passage But for the sake of time, I want to keep moving on this. Number five is this. The prayers of the gathered church are based on the gospel. The prayers of the gathered church are based on the gospel. Pick it up in verse five. For there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Our prayer is based on the work of Jesus Christ as our Savior and mediator. Job. Job cried out in grief. In Job chapter 9 verses 2 and 3. Listen to his prayer. He says, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And then he later laments this. He says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's saying this, oh, if there was only a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. Oh, if there were only someone who could take our prayers into the throne room of God himself. Jesus is our mediator. He is fully God, sinless, holy, able to enter into the holy of holies, able to walk into the throne room of the presence of the Father. Yet he's also fully man. 
He was perfectly obedient to the law. He's able to identify with us as brothers and and take our sin upon himself. Prayer is depending upon Jesus for that because he is our savior. In his substitutionary death, taking our place, he was ransomed for all. He paid the price for, to free us from slavery. Christ's atonement, his death on the cross, is sufficient to save all who will repent and believe. When we are praying, what we're praying for here when we gather together, ultimately is that God would be glorified through lost souls being found. We are praying that Christ would continue to build his church because no matter what needs we bring to the throne, our greatest need is Christ. The atoning work of Christ on the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The atoning work of Christ on the cross is a a graphic revealing of God's heart for the salvation of sinners. And God revealed his plan at exactly the right time and appointed Paul, he says here, to proclaim this truth. The The same God that establishes the ends, salvation of the lost, that's what he's talking about. The same God that establishes the ends also established the means to the ends, Prayer and preaching the word. Prayer is the best expression of the law. Here's what I mean. In prayer, we are declaring our love for God and our love for our neighbors, especially for their lost souls. That's the summary of the law. Love God and love your neighbor. In prayer, we are declaring, I love you, God, because you first loved us. And therefore, I will love my neighbor. Lord, save them. And so the prayers of the assembled church must be based on the gospel. And then the sixth guideline, I guess, that we can see here is that prayer should be led by godly men. Look at verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The men listed in this verse is specific. Paul will address women in the next section, beginning in fact right in the next verse. But right here, he's addressing the men. He's saying this, men, you have a responsibility. Stand up and pray. That's what he's saying. Here's the point. God has required certain men to lead the local church, in this case in prayer. And so here at Logansville Church, when we gather together for worship, this is generally going to be the elders of the church. It's not a requirement to be the elders of the church. But generally, when we gather together, it'll be the elders of the church because there are are three essentials here for effective prayers. Three character qualifications. First, let me read verse 8 again so you can see these three qualifications. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Holy hands represent a, a holy life. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If we have unrepentant sin in our lives, we can't expect God to answer, which is why we need to start our prayers with confession. Second, the men leading prayer need to be without anger, he says. Without anger, at peace with one another. Peacemakers, not troublemakers, is essentially what that means. And then finally, the men leading us in prayer are to, to be without quarreling, without letting petty disagreements taint our gathered prayer. We're not praying passive-aggressive prayers, right? When we gather together to worship, we do so for His glory. But this also works for our benefit, for our good. Because it's through the regular prayers of us when we are together. It's through the the regular participation in the ordinances of, of baptism and communion. It's through the preached and read word of God that he nurtures and nourishes our faith. It is through the ordinary means of grace that Christ builds his church. And so to paraphrase Spurgeon, what can we do without your prayers? They link us with the omnipotence of God. Like the lightning rod, they pierce the clouds and bring down the mighty and mysterious power from on high. The Lord give me a dozen importunate pleaders and lovers of souls, and by His grace we will shake all of Logan County from end to end. For His glory, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the waters of baptism. We thank you that we are immersed into Christ. Father, we thank you that we can eat of the bread and drink of the cup and so proclaim his death, the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. And we thank you that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, that the curtain has been torn that we may march in and call you Abba, Father. That we may cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And so it is my prayer today that we would be a house of prayer, that this church, your people, would be a house of prayer. That we would be a people who are dependent upon you in prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.